I really believe that there's two massive hindrances uh, to living in a marriage relationship with God at the center. There's, a, there's probably a bunch. And if you've been married or you've been in relationships and dating relationships else or otherwise, you understand that these two th- problems... Uh, are going to be a difficulty probably for the, the entirety of a relationship. And one is self-centeredness, right? Like that, that one just hits us really quickly. Uh, I remember when Amanda and I, we, we had dated long distance. I was a senior in, in college when I met her as a freshman. And um, as uh, I graduated, I went and lived on my own for a couple years while she was finishing her um, degree in um, in uh, early elementary or elementary uh, age as a teacher. And uh, she was finishing up her degree. She had another two more years left. Uh, and so during that time, I was on my own living the kind of the bachelor life. And so I ate pizza when I felt like eating pizza. I watched Braves games and football games. I would sit on a couch and do nothing if I felt like it in the afternoon or if I thought, man, you know, I think I want some Sonic today. I'm going to go get some Sonic, you know. And all of a sudden, we get married. And, and it's like, wait, you don't like um, Sonic that much? <laughs> or you don't want to watch all these football games and these baseball games with me anymore? Uh, quickly, I learned that my self-centeredness was going to be a problem, that I had to, there was a lot of give and take here in this relationship. Uh, and so naturally, self-centeredness, because we are, I mean, think about this. Um, one of the big premises behind, I, would, I cannot recommend this book enough to you, is called Marriage. If you have an older copy, it was What Did You Expect by Paul David Tripp. Uh, probably one of the, to me, one of the best books on marriage for those of you that are already married. If you're not married yet, it's a great resource, but oftentimes when you're not married yet, you read this stuff and you're like, oh, that's not us. <laughs> like, no, we're different, right? We're different. Like, we love each other. We talk through everything. Everything's great. Uh, so I don't really need these things yet. Um, and so oftentimes in premarital counseling, I used to use that book, and then it was like, I felt like I was just talking over them. They're like, uh, I don't hear you. I'm like, no, that's not for us. Like, and then and then so naturally, so we switched to Tying the Knot. And so again, if you recommended resource as well, Tying the Knot is an excellent resource for pre-marriage counseling. So a lot of really my thoughts in this series are coming from Scripture, but from a lot of, t- a lot of time and investment into resources like Paul David Tripp and marriage. And Tim Keller, you'll hear me quote him often, his book that he wrote with his wife Kathy on the meaning of marriage and then Tying the Knot uh, as well for pre-marriage counseling. But self-centeredness is something that you're going to always be dealing with in your life as a whole. But nothing greater comes to a head when you take two people who are sinners and you put them in a home together and they come with their own self-centeredness or their own thoughts, their own envisioning of what they think. And you put them in a home together, what naturally is going to happen? Conflict. Self-centered person and self-centered person naturally is going to bring conflict. It's going to bring trouble. It's going to bring issues. You're going to have to deal with these things. So that is one major hindrance to having a God-centered, with God at the center of your marriage, a hindrance to living in that kind of marriage. The other is this. uh, There's many, I'm sure, but at least the two that really stick out to me is unmet expectations. Uh, I think all of us can probably agree if you've been in any kind of relationship, not even just a marriage relationship, but any kind of good relationship that you have a mutual interest and friendship and like and all these things, naturally you have a, an expectation of what you think how a certain thing is going to happen. What happens when the other person hasn't read your mind and doesn't know what you're thinking? Uh, this happens often in our marriage as well. So naturally, for instance, Amanda, I mean, it's like, for instance, you know, it's 
Mother's Day is coming up. You know, she's probably already got some thoughts in her head. She may not tell me what these thoughts are. I have no idea. I've just got to figure them out magically somehow. You know, but, but naturally, there's these expectations that are in her head. Or if we have a date night, she's probably thinking, okay, Eric's going to do this. Eric's going to do that. And I'm thinking, sweet, we have no kids with us for a little bit. Let's just, I'm thinking one thing and she's thinking another. And so naturally, if, if I don't meet those expectations, there's disappointment. I think we've all probably experienced those those types of in in our relationships in general. But especially in marriage, it's heightened, is this idea of unmet expectations. And listen, if we're not careful, these two marriage killers will destroy intimacy and lead to frustration, bitterness, and sadly has brought many, many marriages to an end. And so last week, to catch you up, so some of you weren't here probably last week or maybe not have listened online to the message or anything, but last week we covered, I'm going to do this really briefly just to kind of catch you up because it's the, last week was giving us the big picture for our series on marriage and family. Um, and last week we said that first and foremost, marriage is a covenant instituted by God. It's a covenant relationship. Covenant is not just like, a, I mean, that's not even a word that we use that, that much anymore. We don't really go into covenant relationships with people. We don't think of it that way. Actually, most of our relationships and the way we interact are consumer relationships where it's like, if you provide me services, great. I will choose to use your, your services. And then as soon as someone offers me a better deal or a better opportunity, I'm quickly going to abandon my loyalty to, to, to Aldi if there's a better, cheaper option somewhere out there. You know, or, or if it's Best Buy, Amazon, all the different things. And so naturally, there's a lot of our relationships are consumer. And guess what happens? That consumer mindset comes so quickly and easily into marriage. And so now... Excuse me. And now in our culture, many view marriage as a consumer relationship. As long as you're meeting my needs, as long as you fit my expectations, as long as you work with me, and as long as you're providing me what I want in a marriage, you're happy and you're great. But as soon as that self-centeredness comes in and that person's not meeting your selfish desires or the things that you want, consumer relationship says, no, I'm, I'm fine. But marriage is an institution given by God. This isn't something that Congress made up of or society has made up of all the different societies in history. No, this is institution by God in the Garden of Eden. When man, and when you think about it, last week we said when God made everything, he said it's good, it's good, it's good. But then when he made the man, he looked at the man, he said it's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper fit for him. And he makes woman out of man and the two shall be one, he says. Be united, they'll leave, that, that, the picture of leaving and cleaving, and they'll become a new family unit, leaving the, the home of another and now joining a new family. This is a covenant relationship before God where you're committing. These vows are not just simple words to just say, to be like, oh, look at that cute couple up there. And like, oh, nice, they say these things. No, these vows are commitments, not for today, but the future. It's 20, 30, 40, 50 years down the road of saying, I promise, I commit to love you till death do us part. This was God's design from the very beginning. If you want more details on what Jesus had to say about marriage, I'd encourage you to read Matthew 19 and what he said about marriage as well. So not only is marriage a covenant instituted by God, but also marriage is meant to reflect the gospel. It's a picture of the gospel. It's a picture of Christ and his church. How a husband lovingly, sacrificially, not in a self-centered way, lavishes his love towards his spouse. He loves his wife as Christ loved the church, as Ephesians 5 tells us. 
This is the picture of that. And then the wife, in loving submission, submits to a loving husband who is giving of himself. And she naturally falls under that. And the picture of the gospel is Christ and his church, that Christ is the head of the church. We submit to Christ's view of church, not our view of church. We submit to him. And what does the picture of the gospel look like? It's unfailing love. It is a covenant loyal love. It's a hesed love that we see. There's this beautiful Hebrew word in the Old Testament of steadfast love. And so God, as he lavishes love on us and brings us, and he says he's the bride, and he's the bridegroom, and we're the bride of Christ, and he comes after his bride. This is the picture of the gospel. And so marriage is meant to reflect that. And the third one we looked at last week was marriage is a means of spiritual growth. It's actually probably one of the biggest areas of spiritual growth for any person is through marriage because you're taking two people living together, doing life together, and it is stretching, it's growing, it's beautiful, it brings oneness and relationship, but it also is a means of rooting out that self-centeredness, that selfishness, that pride, that living for self and doing what we want to do. So marriage is a means of spiritual growth. And so today I want to tease out how this spiritual growth can happen? How can a marriage, how can it be a sanctifying relationship that leads to uh, each to look more like Christ? And so today I want to focus on our communication, uh, communication and conflict in marriage uh, and how important this is. Jesus said this, and I want you to see this because especially when you're talking about communication, talking uh, as we, the words that we say to loved ones, friends even, but specifically in marriage relationship is this. Think about this. Jesus said this, out of the abundance of of the heart, what happens? The mouth speaks. So the words that come out of our mouth, there's, it's not just words. So listen, today is not, today is not a day that we're going to, I'm going to give you some helpful tips of like, hey, say this tonight, write these love letters, do these things. I want us to work a little deeper into the heart this morning. And we're going to see that from Ephesians 4 in just a second. But in Scripture, the heart is referred to as the source. It's our inner motives, our desires. So Jesus is saying that our words reflect what is going on in our heart. And so here, rather than giving you these tips, I want us to notice what James says in chapter 4. Uh, You don't have to turn there, but I want to read it to you. In James 4, looking at verse 1 through 3, listen to what James says. I want you to hear, again, this idea of what comes out of our mouth is coming from our heart. Listen to what James 4 says. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? You ever had a quarrel or a fight in your home? You had some nice little disagreements, maybe some shouting matches here and there. You've had um, causes of these things. He's like, what causes these kind of quarrels? What causes these kind of fights? Notice this. He says this, James says, Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Here's what he says, You do not have because you do not ask. Talk about prayer, like when you're frustrated, maybe with the coveting and the different things. You're frustrated with your relationship, and you're frustrated with your spouse. You're frustrated with how life is going. He's saying you don't have because you don't ask, but here's what he says. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly. Why? To spend it on your passions. You see how self-centered, how much our hearts matter with what we say. So when you lash out and defend yourself in a relationship, why? Have you ever paused to think, why? 
Do I feel the need to have to defend myself when being accused of something or being brought up, a, maybe a sin or something that's a bad habit, something that's going on in our relationship and you're, you're struggling there? Have you ever wondered what, when you respond or how you respond or when you criticize or what you don't say, does that speak to something in your heart? You see, this is so important for us to understand. You see, if you want something, you will find ways to use words to get what you want. What does that look like, for instance, right? You really want a new car. You may justify reasons to have a new car. You will talk to your spouse about, you know, it'll be better gas mileage. We'll save money. Uh, The safety features are way better today than they used to be. Um, We don't have to worry about a car breaking down on the side of the road. You'll be safe. (laughs) And yet it somehow is a Corvette. And you're like, well, we have five kids. How is this going to work, right? In some cases, people use manipulation to get what they want, But what brings conflict in marriage? It's when two people want two different things. We bring all of these things into our marriages, and one spouse wants to have a quality time together, for instance, on a nightly basis, and another spouse wants alone time. One spouse spouse wants to fix all the problems, like they're the problem solver. The wife, usually in the case of a lot of times, is husband just doesn't really want to listen. He just wants to solve your problem really fast. And the wife just wants to share it. They just want to, like, feel the emotion with me. Let's talk this through. And you're not really feeling that emotion. You're not just sitting with them there. You're ready to solve the problem. This is why I believe that Ephesians 4 is such a great passage of Scripture for us to study this morning. It's full of the put-off and put-on passages. There's a mirror passage in Colossians with Ephesians. And so listen, if you're dealing with any kind of sin struggle, any difficulty, and you're following Christ, chapter 4 of Ephesians is a great study, a detailed study of what it looks like to put off this old self as it's being conformed to the image of Christ and to putting off these former thinking and the former thoughts and the former actions and putting those off and putting on Christ-like behaviors. And so in this, in this morning, there's some really great principles that we can take from Um, in communication in our relationships. And so I want us to do that. So let's read together. You don't have to read it out loud. I'll read it. But look with me at Ephesians chapter 4. It's a long introduction, but I think it's important for us for this morning. Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 25. Therefore, okay, so again, you have a lot of this new life, this picture of the old and the new, the putting off and the own. Therefore, having put away falsehood, Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander, here's the put off, put away from you, along with all malice. What do we put on? Verse 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. So how do we deal with conflicts in marriage? Naturally, they're going to come up. 
They're going to come up probably frequently because, again, you're putting two sinful people who just aren't perfect. So guess what? There's no perfect marriage because there's no perfect people. And so imperfect people make difficult marriages, and you have to work at them. So how do we do that? What are some principles that we can take from this passage? First is this, if you're taking notes, is this. is Listen, it requires transparent honesty. And transparent honesty is a non-negotiable when it comes to your relationship. You see, relationships are built on trust. How is trust built and kept? It comes from honesty. You see, healthy relationships are built on trust. Um, I appreciate what Paul Tripp has had to say about this topic. Paul Tripp, in his book Marriage, explains that there are two essential character qualities. These are two that I think you should write down. They don't come from me again. It's Paul Tripp. But he says this. He says, first, there's the humility of approachability. He calls it the humility of approachability. Here's what that means, right? So guess what? You've, you've sinned. You've done something wrong. You have offended your spouse or someone that you have a close relationship with. Or this, is a, this, can be a this can apply to all areas of life because this isn't even a passage on marriage. It's a principle for godly living. But the principles all apply heavily into marriage. And he says the, the idea of the humble approachability is this, is that you can humbly receive critique. Now, that is really hard, isn't it? Let's, let's just all agree, yes, that is very difficult. Because what happens? What happens when you're approached, uh, when you, if you're not very humble with this, right? You're quickly, you're ready to do what? What are you going to do? You're going to be the accuser. You're going to quickly go to defense mechanism. Like everything in your mind is like sirens going off, like alert, alert. You need to protect yourself, protect yourself. And so what are you going to do? You're going to protect yourself with excuses. You're going to protect yourself with your own accusations, or you're going to point to like, it was this, this, you know, there was this happened and this happened. And, you know, like the traffic lights were really bad. I thought you wanted this. And so I swung by there, but this store didn't have it. And it's like, are you being honest with where you've been and all these things? You see, we can easily, the humility of approachability is this. It's the idea of that you're willing to allow someone. You saying, I give you permission to speak into my life. I want to be a godly husband or a godly wife. I want to be a godly person. And so, I mean, we should be giving this naturally to the, the best friend of our lives. If you're married, this should be given that permission to them to speak into my life. You notice the blind spots that I don't see. So it's a, a humble approachability. And then the other is this, and some of us struggle with this more than others. Some of us, we don't have the problem here. Maybe we have the first problem, but we don't have the second problem. But some of us may have them both. <laughs> and the second one that Paul Tripp says is the courage of loving honesty. You see, it takes courage to speak the truth. Proverbs explains it this way. He says, like, profuse are the... I mean, like, listen, he's, he's speaking about, like, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. An enemy or someone who maybe doesn't have your best interests out might say some positive things to you, may, and maybe like, oh, you're great, you're all good. They, they don't address some of the problems that you may have. They're allowing you to continue your life of sin or difficulty. But listen, faithful are the wounds of a friend. The, those, those wounds hurt, I'm not going to lie, like being told that you're off in this area and it be reality because you have been in sin, it hurts. It's painful. So it requires courage. The courage of loving honesty. See, I need this. And I, I know that 
I need to be in both of these ways in my own marriage. I think of how I have to, I can easily just retreat to keeping things easy and not worry about the courage of loving honesty in an area that's like a frustration. And this can, and listen, I want to say this too, it doesn't have to just be sinful things. This can be just things that, that like maybe you have some annoying, you know, these like these different things that are just annoying to you. Like, that aren't necessarily personality things or like how you want something. It takes communication. How is this person going to know these unmet expectations if you don't communicate them? They're going to try to second guess. It's like, for instance, like when I, if my back is itching, what am I going to do? Can you just scratch my back? No, maybe like, nope, a little left, a little right, a little up, a little down, right? Like, till they get the spot right. Like, I, I can't just assume they know where my back itches. They have no idea. <laughs> where that I only know that. Same thing in our relationships. We have to communicate these expectations, communicate our thoughts, share these things, and have a heart of humility um, to, to, to re- receive that with grace and understanding and not allow ourselves to put up the defense mechanisms that so always want to come up. You know, being married is oneness, there's a oneness of relationship. And sadly, too many marriages end up living two different lives. And oftentimes that becomes from being lazy, not having the courage to approach, not having humility because maybe someone has had the courage. They finally got the courage to say something. And without humility of approachability, you shut them out. And guess what happens? Next time it's going to be a little harder. And the next time it's going to be even harder. And before you know it, you're just living two separate lives. You see, it's so important to, with conflict and communication, to communicate and the transparency, as Paul is saying here in verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. And in the marriage, we're united together. We are one. Everything should be an open book to each other. There's oneness of relationship. The second is this, is second real principle from this passage is don't leave conflicts unresolved. I, I want to I really plead with you on this one. This is so incredibly important. All these are. You, honesty's, you, got, you have no relationship, really. You, don't have, you have a fake, phony relationship if there's not honesty. Like, if you're not real, if you're not sharing life together, if there's no openness and transparency, like, this is me. Like, nothing greater than being known and loved. Think about that. Like, to be fully known and continuous and continue to be loved. There's nothing greater, really, in this world. To be like, you see the warts, you see it all, you know everything about me. That's why, again, the picture of the gospel is so amazing. That Jesus, God of the universe, knows everything. Every thought that you think, every vile, gross thing that you have ever thought or done, and yet He died for you. He loves you immensely. That is being fully known and fully loved. And what better than to have an experience of that in a relationship on this earth? To be known, to reveal yourself and be like, this is the warts, this is the ugliness, confessing sin, openness of of relationship, and that person choosing to love you still through the ugliness of a relationship. This one here is so important, is don't leave conflicts unresolved. Here the, Paul says it this way, 
be angry, verse 26, be angry and do not sin. So obviously there's an anger, there's a righteous anger. Most of our anger is not. Most of our anger is self-centered. Most of our anger comes from someone, someone is, is in the way of what we want and that makes us angry, right? Most of our anger isn't like, man, I'm so frustrated that the devil is continuing to win over uh, the, the heart of my husband or my spouse. Or I can't stand the, the thought you're frustrated and you're upset with the brokenness of this world that you see persecution happening overseas in the Middle East where all of the, and you're like upset at these things and it hurts your heart and it makes you angry. Now, most of our angry is, anger is rooted in self-centeredness and not getting our way. But here he says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Give no opportunity. Listen to this. See how important this is. Because he's warning it. If you let the sun go down, meaning the next day come, and you didn't deal with the conflict between the two of you, listen, that is, that is a recipe for disaster in your relationship. I cannot say this strong enough. This is something I'm thankful that Amanda and I have been really, really, this is one, like, there's, I think there's a lot of areas. Amanda was like, you know, you're, you're being a little, I, I try to, I try to share like the, the warts and sometimes I share too many of the warts and not all the good in our relationship because I'm like, I'm trying to connect. I'm like, I want you to understand, like, I'm not perfect. I'm like you uh, as well. We struggle in these things. And then Amanda's like, but you, sometimes you, you're saying too many of those things. And like, I mean, she's like, we do have a great relationship, right, Eric? I'm like, I mean, yeah, we do. I know. And she's like, well, we make sure the people know that too um, as well. But this is an area I think we have always, I would say, excelled at. Uh, we have conflicts. Goodness gracious, of course we have conflicts. Uh, there's plenty of times where, like Valentine's this year, it was not the most ideal Valentine's. There's something about those, those, those supposed to celebrate those, those occasions just somehow end up not so great. <laughs> and I mean, just, just recently, it's like she was expecting this card. We had talked about cards. We have lots of cards that we've bought over the years that have never given <laughs> to one another. And so we have this pile to choose from <laughs> every year. And slowly we could d- diminish that pile and somehow it doesn't happen. Well, I was planning on giving it to her. Again, unmet expectations, planning on giving it to her. Uh, it's nighttime. I'm tired. I'm ready to go to bed. And, and we've had a, I thought we'd had a good day. My head, we've had a good day. It's been great. Uh, and, and so we go to bed and Amanda is, you could just something's off. You know, she's not happy. And, and I'm like, my alert system is all up and like, all right, run away. Like, I, I just like hide, you know, those, those kind of like self, self protection, <laughs> protect yourself, protect your heart, all these things. And so naturally, but what happens that night? We will all listen. We always get it resolved that evening before we go to sleep every time. Finally, it might be like you're holding your eyes open and you're just rolling, waiting, and then you get a kick or a nudge and you're like still awake. Yep, I'm still awake, still processing everything, our frustration. And then finally, because I can hold my thoughts to myself, finally, she's going to speak up oftentimes. And then I will listen intently, receive it with humility, and we share and we work through it um, in the evening before, not that the sun has already gone down, but before I close my eyes and go to sleep at night. You see, do not leave conflicts unresolved. Because even in that night, so you're probably wondering, like, well, how did it get resolved? Well, for one, we talked through it, and I was like, came up with my excuses, you know, that I told you not to use earlier. <laughs> um, but the point was, we were going, we weren't really celebrating it in my mind that day. We were celebrating Valentine's the next day. We were going to go on a date the next day because it wasn't working out for that day. So in my head, the card was coming to the date, <laughs> not that night. And she was ready for the card that night. <laughs> uh, and that didn't happen. So we, but we talked through those things and, and, and we deal with it with communication. Listen, I cannot tell you, this is what happens in a marriage. If you allow those thoughts 
to go into the night and to the next day, what happens? Bitterness. You start keeping a record of wrongs. You start rehearsing all of the things that they should have done or haven't done. You start thinking on those things. And here's what Paul is saying. He says, give no opportunity to the devil. Like, the devil wants nothing more than for your relationship to be strained. He wants nothing more than for your marriage to not look Christ, uh, look like a Christ-centered marriage and to mirror the gospel. He wants you to see conflict. He wants you to be deceived. And he wants you to hold on to that anger and say, yeah, you deserve better. It's your spouse's fault. It's not your fault. It's their fault. They should have known better. They should have responded differently. And if you let it sit, if you let the sun go down on your, I promise you, it will build and it will keep building. And what happens once it keeps building? Trust is out the window. Relationship is out the window. Oneness, no more. All of a sudden, two people are living two separate lives. To keep the peace, we have the children, we'll keep them happy. We have children in our home, this is great, but we'll live two separate lives. You go to work, they go to work or stay at home. Um, you come home, you might eat a meal together on the couch, and then you go your separate ways and you do different things, and you may even get in the same bed together, say goodnight, and go to the next day. Before you know it, you have no relationship. Listen, don't miss this one. This one's important. Don't leave conflicts unresolved. Third is this that Paul uses here is use words. Use your words to build up rather than to tear down. Use words to build up, to encourage, rather than to tear down. Oh man, we do this often, don't we? When an issue is brought up, maybe a blind spot or some way that we did not lovingly do or say something, when it is addressed, how do you respond? Oftentimes through defensive measures. Those security lights are going on and you're going to protect yourself. And so naturally, what do we do? We usually spout off excuses or even hurl insults back. See, Paul is warning us here in this passage to be always using words of encouragement. He says, let no, verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. See, our words should be gracious words. They should be extending grace grace. Here in Ephesians 5.33, it tells us, we looked at it last week just briefly, it says, however, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. But if you look, look in this passage, there's this such an important part of verse 29 where he says, no one has even hated his own flesh. So he's talking about the oneness here in this passage. He says, no one's hated his own flesh, but rather, what does he do? He nourishes and cherishes it. See, naturally, you nourish yourself, you feed yourself, you give yourself food to eat, you give your, yourself things to eat and to drink, you, you take care of your body to the degree that you feel that you is necessary. And here he's describing it as like we should be cultivating our spouse like a precious plant or a precious flower to us that we water. I mean, imagine, think about it, if you had two plants one of them you take care of. You prune it. You, you give it water. You're always checking on it. The other, you don't do anything to it. You just let it get some sun. That one plant sitting there getting its sun and the other sitting right next to it getting sun as well. But that one you take care of. You nourish. You water. You prune. You clip it. You, you treat it well and you keep caring for it. 
over time, what's going to happen? We know the answer to this, right? One eventually is going to wither and die, and the other is going to flourish. Well, unless you're not very good at nourishing like I am. I'd probably kill the plant, even if I tried to water it. I'd probably overwater it or something. But the point is, we pour into our spouse. We pour into them with encouraging words. We pour, on, pour into them by cherishing, as this word is in, in, 20, in, in verse 29 of chapter 5. We nourish and we cherish. And as Paul is saying in chapter 4, we don't let the corrupting words and, the, and that talk come out of our mouths. Again, where is that coming from? We saw that in James 4, right? It's coming from our heart. So what's, why do you say the words that you say? You don't need to just look at your words. You need to pay attention to where the words are coming from. They're coming from something in a heart that is not getting what it wants or something that's getting in the way of that. And oftentimes our spouse gets in the way of our self-centeredness because they have certain thoughts and they have certain things. But here Paul is saying like, we're to love and give sacrificially of ourselves. You see... Listen, don't let your words... So listen, we're trying to be encouraging. We're loving our spouse by approaching them with love and grace, speaking the truth as we looked at earlier. But how are we to do that? What's practically a way to do that? You see, the importance is that we let our words not just be about correction. Our words shouldn't be just like, you know, I'm looking for your best interest, and you treat them like a project. <laughs> you treat them like a project, and you're trying to make them perfect, and you're always like, oh, did you notice this? Oh, you, you should have done this differently, or oh, have you noticed? And you're trying to just make them be this person that you think they should be, and maybe with good intentions, but if all you're ever speaking are corrective behaviors, listen, you're going to miss the boat by a mile, because why? Like for every corrective statement, there should be about five to ten or more statements of encouragement, of thankfulness, of gratefulness, of gratitude. Thank you so much for all the things that you do. Thank you for how you did this this past week. Man, I'm thinking about you. I love you. I care for you. How can I help you? All these ways. If you're saying these things and you're modeling that, guess what? When it comes to the corrective behavior, when it comes to approaching the blind spot, it's going to be a lot easier to receive it with humility. We have to use words to build up rather than to tear down. You see, in a marriage, in relationships in general, we can be so focused on our spouse's shortcomings and failures that we become blind to our own. And that becomes the big problem. Because how many counseling sessions I've heard over the years myself and even in some of the books that I've read and hearing them give examples of counseling sessions and they say, here comes the couple and they're both talking and like, what's the problem? And they at the same time say, he and she, <laughs> they point to one another, they're the problem. And so often we miss that we are sinful people that naturally we're a part of the problem to some degree. Even if we didn't bring about the current problem, we are also problematic. We don't, we're not perfect. No one is. And so oftentimes we're focused on these things and what gives us the power to go to bed and deal with conflict and hurts, to not let the sun go down on our, our frustrations and our anger, it is recognizing your own sin. It's seeing how we desperately need God's forgiveness. You see, here's the thing though, is this, and I want you to see this in verse 32. He says it, so abruptly as we end chapter, third, chapter 4, he says, Be kind to one another, 
tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Well, that's great. I mean, I want to be tender. I want to be forgiving. But do you know how painful the hurts have been? Do you know how much I have been offended by their sin? And we're so focused on their sin. What's going to allow you to have this transparent honesty, to not let the sun go down on your wrath, to speak tenderly and lovingly and cherishing and nourishing? What motivates that? What brings about that in dealing with conflict? It's this right here. It's forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. It is the gospel that gives us the power to forgive wrongs to us. It is recognizing that I am sinful, that I am broken and in need of God's grace, and He willingly and lavishingly loved me and pours out His grace on me. You see, forgiveness isn't just ignoring wrongs. Like, no. Forgiveness is not just saying, okay, I, I, like, the, listen, I, I, I feel pretty confident saying that we have not just been like, okay, I'm sorry, like a, a general sorry at night, let's go to sleep on that. Okay, I will because we keep this thing. We've got a long streak going, 16 years of it, right, of going to bed without dealing with our conflicts. No, it, I, I will say, I'm sure there's been a time or two probably over the years, I don't want to say it with full transparency or anything like that, but point being is this, I'm pretty confident we always deal with it appropriately. Not just like, I'm sorry, or, well, I forgive you, but not really forgiving. Because here's the thing, forgiveness is not just ignoring wrongs and saying, no, you haven't wronged me. First of all, too, when we forgive, like especially in the relationship, when there has been sin, like you lovingly confront, right? You confront sin, you approach it with humility and grace. That's the part we were talking about earlier. And when you approach that in seeking to restore the relationship that's been broken because of sin, there's a need for forgiveness. You're approaching that. The, the response from the person who has offended should be repentance, should be owning up to sin and seeking to repent, turn from the sinful behavior. Like, listen, if someone continues to, continues to live in unrepentant sin, you can forgive in the way of saying this, like I, because it hasn't been given to you to forgive. Like they haven't asked for your forgiveness. But what you can do is vertically say, God, I'm giving it to you because you're the judge. You judge. You're the judge. It's not my job to get vengeance. It's not my job to cast a judgment. It is God's to do. And so forgiveness is this. And I want you to hear this. Forgiveness is handing it over to God vertically. Forgiveness begins by handing it over to God and saying, I'm not the judge. I am leaving that up to God's perfect justice. You seek to respond with grace that you have received from God. And maybe you're saying, I don't know how or what this looks like. Like, you know, we have so many problems. And you're thinking, man, we have so many problems in our marriage. You're saying, like, we've gone to bed many nights, maybe years, of really not dealing with issues. Unrepentance is there. Unforgiveness is there. Maybe there's been very little encouraging words. It's been a lot of criticism and harsh words, rather. Or maybe there's distance, and you're going like, how do we even move forward from here? It starts here. It starts with your relationship with Christ. You give it first to Him. You give your marriage to Him. 
you know, when we were talking about the goodness of God and we were saying, I lay my, down, I lay my life down. I, I live my life with complete surrender. I surrender now everything. Surrender your relationships. Surrender your marriage, your spouse. Surrender your children. Surrender all the things of this world and say, God, they are yours. They're not mine. I surrender. I step back. And so the gospel is saying, you have come and you have forgiven me. You have poured out your grace. If you're a follower of Jesus, this is the model for your relationship with your spouse. It's to be quick to forgive, to not keep a record of wrongs, to lovingly, self-sacrificingly, to give of yourself and to pour out yourself to another. And you see, this is what first has to happen in our own lives. How can we have a godly, God-centered, glorifying marriage? It starts with your relationship with Christ. Jesus has to be at the center of your life, which then turns it into the center of your marriage and into every aspect of your life. Until the vertical relationship is properly dealt with, the horizontal relationships, whether that's in work, whether that's in marriage, children, kids, friends, all the different things, those can't be properly done. They can be band-aided, they can be fixed, but ultimately it starts with the gospel. And this is what motivates us to be transparent, to deal abruptly, quickly, appropriately with our wrongs, to not let the sun go down on our wrath. It gives us the freedom and the joy of loving another and encouraging words and caring and serving one another, putting their needs above your own. You see, it motivate, the motivation is the gospel. And how can we pursue this kind of lifestyle? It starts with first recognizing that as God in Christ forgave you. He loved you. He cared for you. He died for you. So that all those who put their faith in his completed work on the cross, his death, his burial, and also his resurrection, the life that he gives, he frees us to be a forgiving people. So that when we are wronged, we can extend forgiveness. That does not make it easy. I want you to hear that. Forgiveness is hard because it's painful. Because what are you doing? You're releasing it. You're saying, I can't hold that against you anymore. I'm not going to hold this over you. I'm not going to pound you with your past failures. I'm not going to pound you with those things. It's releasing it and saying, God, it's yours. I give it to you. And so the naturally, guess what? When you recognize how much you're a sinner and how much God forgave you, you can learn to forgive those who wrong you. Listen, if you want to have a joyful, hope-filled, exciting, vibrant relationship, it begins with open, honest communication and dealing with conflicts in an appropriate way. And we do that with the lens of the gospel in mind. So let me pray. Father, I want to just thank you so much for your word that you do not leave us silent. Uh, there's so much on marriage that we could, we could spend a year talking about it probably. Um, but I, I know many who've been hurt by marriage that have been uh, through painful, painful divorce and abandonment. People who've been hurt by a, 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 a partner who have been, I'm sure others who've been abused verbally, maybe even physically. God, I, that, we don't take these things lightly. This is not how you intended it to be. It is the brokenness of our world that leads to this, these tragic outcomes in relationships. Father, I thank you, though, that your grace is greater than all of our sin. 
that you are a father to the fatherless and that even that you are a groom to your bride, that you're a perfect loving God and you're so, so good to us. So Father, help us. Help us to approach your word and approach this life and our relationships with this unbelievable gratitude and grace that you've extended um, through your forgiveness of us. Because we have been forgiven, we can deal with these conflicts with grace and love. So help us, God, strengthen our relationship with you and strengthen our relationships to one another. Help us to love as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Help us to live these, in light of these truths and in light of your gospel. Help us, Father. We ask this in your son's name. Amen.